a couple of weeks ago, we began working our way through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And, and uh, this is going to be one of the few chapters, probably the only chapter that will actually take two weeks to go through the entire chapter. And we're doing that because there's so much in this chapter. But one of the things that we've mentioned is that the reason this is called Acts or the Acts of the Apostles is because it tells us what the apostles did from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven for the next 35 or so years. And so it's a continuation of the gospel story. So uh, we'll see that as we, as we travel through. Acts covers the history and the theology of the early church, and we've certainly seen that. We'll certainly see it as we travel through. And so last week, or two weeks ago, we went through chapter one, and as we did that, we, we mentioned something, and there on your outline, that Jesus was raised from the dead, and on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus meets with his disciples, the apostles, and he says this, and I put it there in your outline. He says, when he had, re- when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so we hold, at that point, Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's died on the cross for their sins, and so now they can be saved, and so he says, he breathes on them, says receive the Holy Spirit, so it's at that point that they receive the Holy Spirit. And so then Jesus begins to meet with the disciples, the apostles, over the course of the next 40 days. And in that time period, in Acts chapter 1, to the disciples who had received the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now what's important there is it says they will receive power to be his witnesses. It doesn't say that they will receive power to go witnessing. The idea is that their lives, what God is doing in their lives and how God is empowering them is going to be evident to all that God is really doing something here. And so we talked about that when we were there. So that empowering took place, and we read about it last week in Acts chapter 2. I want to read the first five verses and just make a couple of comments just to bring us, just kind of to refresh our our memory. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, on the day of Pentecost, and that's going to be important because everybody's in from out of town, uh, thousands and thousands of people there in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It's what it sounded like. It doesn't say that there was a violent rushing wind, just that was the sound. And and it filled the house where they were sitting. And uh, we underlined the word sitting and what was important, and we made this comment last week, is that nobody falls down. So if you're wondering where we're going today, uh, just know nobody falls down. So just keep that in mind. And verse 3, it says, And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit was giving utterance. Now there were Jews living or staying in Jerusalem, it's a piece of Pentecost, devout men from every nation under heaven. And so we, we talked about this empowering, and we talked about how the disciples began to speak in languages that the people who were in from out of town, from all of these nations, they were hearing them speak in their own language, and they were praising God as they did that. So when we talked about this empowering, uh, typically what happens is all of us find ourselves in a certain genre of church. 
And uh, when we get into our genre of church, we tend to throw out the other genres as, as we stick to, to our own. And uh, so when we talk about this empowering, some of us come from a genre of church where this is very, very strange to our ears. And uh, we come from a background where they don't really talk about this. However, what we find as we study through the Bible is that what we're talking about here was just a basic teaching of the early church. I put there in your outline, Paul's writing to Hebrew believers and he says this to them. You want to underline a couple of things. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings, you want to underline that, about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, how to get saved, and faith in God, and then underline instruction about baptisms. And the word there is baptismo, so I'll come back to that. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And, and God permitting, we will do so. We'll come back and talk about those things, but Paul says we need to get these things and then move, move on beyond them. So this was just a basic teaching, an elementary teaching of the early church. I wanted to highlight, it says teachings about baptisms, and we saw that that word is in the plural. Did you notice that? It's in the plural. And the reason I put the Greek word there, baptismos, is some of your translations will translate that word as washings, but washings has nothing to do with Christianity. So it's baptisms. And it's in the plural. So when you talk about baptisms, we're all familiar with being baptized in in our genre of church. We're all familiar with being baptized in water. That is where you receive Jesus as your Savior. You go into the water and then you identify with Christ in his death, his burial, and then in his resurrection. And as you come up out of the water, the idea is now you walk in a newness of life. And and, uh, we get that. But the Bible says baptisms, and there are other baptisms that the Bible speaks about. Notice there on your outline, one would be, Paul writes into the letter of, of, of Corinth, and he says, for by one spirit you were all baptized into one body. And here it says, by one spirit we were all baptized. The idea here is that it's the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ. So what we would write down there, and you want to write this down, is the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Jesus, into the body of Christ. And it's at that point we would hold that that's where you're saved. That's where you're saved. You become born again. We believe that that happened on the night that Jesus meets with his disciples. He's been raised from the dead. He breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then baptizes them into the body of Christ. Well, as you go a little bit further, one of the things that you find is that when you go through the Gospels, all of the Gospels tend to highlight certain aspects of Jesus' ministry and, and all that took place. And they're all drawing certain points because they're, they're conveying a, a different perspective of his ministry. And so one Gospel will leave something in and another Gospel won't leave that in because it's not the point that that Gospel's making. And so you'll read one Gospel and it'll have this miracle, but this Gospel won't have that. So when you come to the Gospels and you find something that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, you always want to stop and and, uh, consider because if the Lord leaves it in, in all four Gospels, there's a reason. There's something very important. So one of the things that we find that's in all four of the Gospels, there's a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, as he's speaking about Jesus, he makes this comment, and we see it in all four of the Gospels. For instance, in Matthew's Gospel, there in your outline, it says, he will baptize you 
with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here you have Jesus who's going to be baptizing uh, these people with the Holy Spirit and fire. Then you have in Mark's gospel, John says, I baptize you with water, but he, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well then in Luke's gospel it says it like this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then in John's gospel it says, John John the Baptist is saying, he upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. This is very different than the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ. Here what we see, and you want to write this down, is going to be Jesus baptizing us in or with the Holy Spirit. So this baptism is straight from Jesus. So to the apostles who had received the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, you will receive uh, you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that took place in Acts chapter 2 to the disciples who had received the Holy Spirit. Now some would look on at what I just shared with you and they would say, well, you know, it's Jesus baptizing, it's you know, Jesus or the Holy Spirit into the body, Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. It, it's really all the same. I mean, we're just changing a couple of words, you know, that it, it doesn't really change. It's all just one thing. Well, have you ever read in the Bible where the Bible says God is love? You ever read that? God is love. That's what it says. Some people will take that and say, well, if you say God is love, then can't you equally say that love is is God, and they rearrange the words a little bit. Well, when you rearrange the words, it changes the meaning, the meaning dramatically. For instance, uh, it's okay to say my dog is a girl, but you probably don't want to say my girl is a dog. <laughs> Would you agree? And, and just because you rearrange a couple of words, it really dramatically changes the meaning. And so when you come to these passages. The words are there by design because he's conveying something. And so we don't want to just say, well, it's all the same thing. Well, it's, it's a very, very different thing that he is conveying. This was a very basic teaching in the, very, in the early church. Now, so, so there, there's, there's something to this, I, I, I would suggest. Now because, and we're going to talk about this as we travel through. Did you at least find that interesting, by the way? No, you didn't. Okay, well, well, there's more to come. There's more to come. So, um, so, so we find that it's the Feast of Pentecost. Everybody is in town from all around the world. And then we get to verse 5 of chapter 2, and it says there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And uh, so when the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place, we, we find that, that they begin to praise God in the languages of all the countries that these people are from all around the world. And then in that day and in this day, there's always a response to whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is doing. And we talked about this last week. If you go to chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, those who hear this, it says they all continue with amazement and great perplexity and saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying, they're full of sweet wine. So the three responses. First of all, some people are amazed that God is doing something. That's good. Some people are perplexed. I don't understand. Give me some more information. That's okay too. 
But you never want to find yourself in the position of making fun, mocking what it is that the Holy Spirit is doing. And uh, sometimes in our genre of church, we can look on, if we're not careful, we might find ourselves doing that. Well, so then we have, as, as they are doing this, they're responding, Peter stands up and Peter begins to give a sermon. And we notice that this is a very different Peter that we found in the Gospels and we found in the first chapter of Acts. This is Peter who's now been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so he's going to give a sermon. And we talked about that sermon last week. He outlines what's going to be different after Jesus is raised from the dead, pays the price for our sins, and the Holy Spirit is given. So he gives that sermon, and we went all the way to verse 37. And in verse 37, it says, after he finishes the sermon, it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And and what I love about this is if you go through the, the teaching that Peter gives, it wasn't a great program. It wasn't, you know, all of the elaborate things. It's just explaining God's word and God's spirit moving. And all of a sudden it pierces their heart and they, what do we do? What do we do? Well, then we come to verse 38. Now, verse 38 is a pivotal verse for us. Verse 38, it says, and I want you to underline one word as we go through this. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, you want to underline, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. When you are saved, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you, you, are, you invite Jesus in, his Holy Spirit comes inside of you and begins to dwell. And so we'll talk about that as we go. But verse 38 is a verse that divides denominations. And uh, you might come from a denomination that takes a very different view of this verse. In verse 38 it says, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Some of your Bibles will say for the remission of sins. And the reason that I had you underline that word for is that word for, again, divides denominations. In the original language, it's a three-letter word. It's I-E-S or E-I-S rather. And uh, you can translate that word two ways. You can translate that word to say to get or because of, because of. And so some, as they read this verse, they say, when Peter says in verse 38, uh, be, baptized, um, uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, they say that you're being baptized to get the forgiveness of your sins. And there's a number of denominations that hold that. So the question is, or it could also be because of. So the, the, the question then, is it to get the remission of your sins or is it because of the remission of your sins, the taking away of your sins? So there on your outline, uh, we would take it as to mean because of. Let me just show you how this works. So the question is, am I baptized to get or because of the remission of sins? If I say I, I got a ticket for speeding, did I get a ticket to get the speeding, or did I get a ticket because of the speeding? Some of you don't know. Take a guess. You can do it. You do it. Just put it out there. So because of or to get? 
first service, they knew the answer to that question. So, so you'd say because of the speeding. So go ahead and write that down. Same word for, but it wouldn't be to get. It would be because of. Now, an, another question. If I say my child is disciplined for misbehavior, would that be to get the misbehavior or would that be because of the misbehavior? Because of. Okay, so we're on the same parenting track here. That's good. So you want to write that down. The child is disciplined because of misbehavior. So when we read this verse, we say there on your outline, you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for or because of, because of the forgiveness of your sins. Now the reason that we hold that view is because as you go through the Bible and you read the verses, for instance, here's one, John 3.16. If baptism was essential for you to be saved, uh, then certainly John 3.16 would go, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If baptism was required for salvation, then you think in a verse like that that Jesus would have included that. But he left that out. Because you're not baptized to get salvation, you're baptized because of your salvation. Does that make sense? Good. Hopefully that if uh, you know, you've ever talked to somebody, that'll, that'll help you out. Well, verse 38. Verse 38, he says, Brethren, said, he, uh, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for or because of the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that happens when you are saved. Verse 39, he says, for the promise is for you, your children, and for those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So when he says it's for you, your children, and those who are far off, uh, we would hold, because he's speaking generationally, there, and you want to write this down, that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for every generation. And ultimately for all who are far off and all those who would be called according to his name. So we would hold there in your outline, whatever the Holy Spirit was doing then, he's doing now. So if you think of it, and if you come from a background like I did growing up, and we were taught that was for then, it's not for now, um, stay away from that. If there's anything to this, who would have uh, the greatest interest, who would have the most to gain by talking Christians out of being empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, so that they could be witnesses for Jesus? Would it be Jesus or, or would Satan have the most to gain by talking us out of it? So as we go through this, consider that, consider that. Sometimes our most difficult task is uh, examining and sometimes walking away from some of the things that we were taught, especially as we examine what the Bible says. So maybe there's something more to this, and we'll certainly talk about this as we travel through. Well, verse 40, it goes on, and it says, with many other words, Peter's speaking here, uh, or speaking about Peter, many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now there's two things that are very important in this verse. First of all, um, it says with many other words, Peter is giving a much longer sermon than is recorded. Peter could be talking for a couple of hours, we don't know. 
the point there is that if you think I go too long, I don't want to hear it. Peter went very long. Many other words, many other words. So, but the other thing that I find so interesting is in my translation, it says, he was exhorting them with words, solemnly testified, kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. How many of your Bibles don't use the word perverse, but they use the word untoward? Untoward. Yeah, wave those hands in the air. Okay, that's important because in the original language, that's what it means. When we think of perverse in our language, we think somebody's committing some type of sexual crime or something like that. But, but the word means untoward. The idea is that generation was not going toward the Lord, they were going untoward. The idea is they were going the opposite generation. And if that generation was going untoward, how much more our generation is. And so, so you need to be saved from that generation. Then it says, verse 41, it says, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Now, that's there by design that there were 3,000 souls saved on that day when the Holy Spirit is given. They receive the word and uh, they receive his holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll remember back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, God has called the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Moses is leading. Moses, Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives Moses the law. Moses comes down the mountain to give the law and as he comes down, we find that the people are just doing terrible things. And uh, so much so that when Moses shows up on the day that he brings the law down, because of what the people were doing, God had to bring judgment on the people. Now, notice that verse there on your outline. And it says, there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. That's there by design. 3,000 people fell when the law was given, but 3,000 will be saved when the Spirit is given. So there on your outline, just write this down, on the day that the Holy Spirit is given, 3,000 are saved. But on the day that the law was given, 3,000 people died. And it's emphasizing the different results of having God's Spirit or living under what they would call the Old Testament laws. It's going to be very, very different. Now, one other thing in verse 41 that's going to be important for our, our, our study. How many of your Bibles say something like, so then those who had gladly received? How many of your Bibles say gladly? Good. Now, that's important because that word is in the original manuscripts. And I put that there in your outline. And then, then they gladly received his word, were baptized, and on the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. If it's the Holy Spirit that you receive, it's always going to be with gladness. That, that's the result of receiving the Holy Spirit. It's not that they received a, um, a faith of orthodoxy where you have certain rules and things that you have to memorize and, and all of that. They received God's Spirit and the result would be gladness inside. If, if you've not received gladness that comes from the Holy Spirit, it might not be the Holy Spirit that we find in the Bible that's come to dwell in you. So I wanted to take a few moments and just look at what does it look like when people receive with gladness the Holy Spirit or the Word of God. 
And so I'm going to read a couple of verses, we'll underline and then we'll come back. And then there's a couple of things that we need to talk about. Pick it up in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, I've underlined teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, I've underlined temple, and breaking bread from house to house. So they had large corporate worship, and then they had smaller groups where they met together. Uh, The temple was 35 acres in size. So you could take 3,000 people, put them in the corner of the courtyard of the temple, and it still wouldn't take up more than an acre or so as they all gathered together. And so they would meet corporately, and then they would also meet in smaller groups. So from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved, those who were being saved. So what does it look like when people gladly receive the word of God? Well, we notice a few things. First of all, you want to write this down. There's a hunger for God's word. There's a hunger for God's word. Verse 42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't have the New Testament at that time, so the apostles' teaching was the word of God to them. And there was something about it that they were hungering for. So I have to ask myself, when when I received Jesus and God's spirit came to dwell inside of me, was there a hunger for God's word? Something that we need to ask ourselves. They couldn't get enough. Another thing that we notice is that there was a desire for fellowship with other believers. Desire for fellowship with other believers. Verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And uh, then it goes on to say, and to the breaking of bread. And the idea is that fellowship was manifesting itself in sharing their meals. There was something they wanted to sit down, they wanted to eat with one another. So if you, <laughs> if you go out to eat after church on Sunday, that's biblical. They wanted to eat together. As, that was funnier in the first service. But Another thing that we notice in gladly receiving the word is that there was a desire to spend time with God in prayer. This is something they, they received God's word and God's spirit was there. And verse 42, it tells us, it says, they received the word. Uh, well, verse 42, they, they uh, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. There was something about wanting to spend time with God. So I have to ask myself, when I received God's spirit, I received the word, I received the message, did, did that happen? Is, is there that desire inside of me? Another thing that we notice, and you want to write this down, uh, there was a desire to participate tangibly in God's work. Verse 45, it says, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Interesting, the word property there can also be uh, the word estate. This was actual land that they were selling. And then possessions just means possessions. Something was happening. They'd received the word. They were responding. There was this God-given desire to participate in what it is that God was doing. Now, what's also important is that people are in town from all over the world. It's the Feast of Pentecost, thousands of people. And so 
as they're in town, God's spirit moves, 3,000 people get saved. And so they realize that these people who are in from all over the world, they need to get some teaching before they go back to the country that they come from. So to meet that need, they began, those who lived in Jerusalem, they sold some property, they sold some possessions, because they realized that the people who were there, they couldn't pull out their Visa card, their American Express, they couldn't wire home for money, and they needed to get some teaching, so they said, here's how we're going to respond to this. And there was something inside of them by the Holy Spirit that they just wanted to. Uh, Nowhere is it saying that they were forced to, it's just something that the Spirit wanted to do. They received the Word of God with gladness, and that's how they responded. Another thing that we notice is that there was a desire to praise God. Verse 47, praising God and having all favor with the people. So this was something that was just the manifestation of opening their hearts to the Lord. God's Spirit comes in, and this is how they responded. That's what it looks like when people gladly respond. They receive the Word. So that takes place, and then God responds to what's taking place. And here's what we notice. First of all, there's a sense of God's presence. You want to write that down. Verse 43, it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. You just feel God's presence. Another thing that we see is that the church grew, or God grew the church. Verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So God's growing the church. And then we also see miracles. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So here things are taking place that can only be described as God is doing something. So we see that. We see that. There's something here that I want to talk about. Um, People will say, I want to have an Acts chapter 2 kind of church. And uh, you'll even, some churches will even call themselves Acts 2. And uh, people will say, I want to have an Acts 2 type of church, and here's the model. And they go from verse 42 all the way to verse 47, what we just read. And they will say, this is the model for church, and this is what I want to have. Anybody ever heard anybody say something like that? Three people? Good. Okay, so I'm talking to you. So Some will say, you know, where you read there in verse 46, you know, it says day by day, day by day. And then verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they'll say something like, you know, if we're going to have an Acts 2 type of church, what this means is that we're going to need to get together day by day. And uh, we're going to be together every day. We're going to break bread together. It's going to be fantastic day by day, just like it was in Acts chapter 2. Now, churches that do that, and some churches have tried that, those churches usually fizzle out really quick. I don't know how it is for you, but I feel like I'm doing good to get my family here on Sunday and maybe Wednesday, uh, and, and, uh, and I'm the pastor. So... Um, so the question is, is day-by-day meeting uh, and breaking bread together, is that the model for church? Is that the model? Well, some people would look at that and they'd say, well, yeah, yeah it is. Now, if, you're, if you grew up like me, um, I um, was part of what was called the Jesus Movement back in the late 1960s and the early 70s. More the early 70s. I was still a little kid in the 60s. I'm only 35 now. But 
But how many of you were part of the Jesus movement way back when? Okay, 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 okay. So one of the things that people would say is they would say, we want to have an Acts chapter 2 type of church. And what we read, we see that Christianity teaches communal living. And uh, because it says, I mean, you look at it, verse 44, it says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So they would say Christianity teaches communal living. We all live together. We have all things in common. Uh, you don't have your stuff. I don't have my stuff. It's just, you know, we just all have it together. We're just share, share, share. And some groups actually began in that time and they started communal living and uh, it got pretty weird and uh, we won't go into that. But the question is, does Christianity teach communal living based upon this? Well, well some people would, would say that it does. Um, in seminary, a professor said, um, communism is perfect Christianity. Because when, when you look at it in verse 45, it says they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so they were redistributing the wealth, so that everybody had the same. And they would say, so, so communism is really like Christianity. And I would just say this about that, is, is that um, communism is very different than Christianity. And here, here's how it's different. In Christianity, if I say, hey, I'm a Christian, what's mine is yours, well, that's Christianity. Communism says, no, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. And when you remove choice, it's no longer Christian. Uh, that makes sense? Yes. Good. All right. So, so we look at this and we hear all of these things. You know, it does does communism? You know, day by day, does it mean that we have to meet together as an Acts two type of church? Do we live in a commune? Is is Christianity communism? And and uh, so and, and do how do we how do we build our church? And is this the model for how we build church? Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we first began this study, are you interested in what I'm going to say next? <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, as we were going through this, I said there's two terms that we have to become familiar with when you get into the book of Acts. One term is going to be descriptive and the other one is prescriptive. Some things are descriptive. This is just what they did. It's what they did. Others are prescriptive. That is, this is what you are to do. And sometimes the challenge is deciphering between that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. So I want to share with you the part that everybody misses when they say this is the model. Okay, and they they make this prescriptive. So here's the challenge. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, what we find is that It says, when the day of Pentecost had come. And we see that there are people, thousands of people, who are in Jerusalem because it's Pentecost. They've come to town to celebrate this feast. And then if you go a little bit further, verse 9 and 10, it tells you some of the nations that they're from, you know, the Medes and and, uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and all that. And it gives a a list, a, a partial list of where all those nations come from. And so all these people are in town for Pentecost. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stands up and he preaches. And 3,000 people get saved. And the people realize that because we're in town from all of these nations, these people are going to go back to where it is they come from. 
And before they go back to where it is they come from, they need to get some teaching. Uh, We're going to find that because they got some teaching, when Paul or Peter arrives in Rome, there's already a church there. How did a church begin there? Because they were in from Rome in this place and they got some teaching. So the church responds by saying, in a very short-term period, we need to do something so these people can get teaching. We need to feed and we need to house at least 3,000 people, and the number was growing. So some of the people said, in order to meet the short-term need, we're going to sell this piece of property. We realize they can't pull out their American Express. They, can't, they don't have a Visa card. They can't wire money. So we're going to do what we can so that these people can be here for a short period of time before they go back to the place where they came from and continue sharing the gospel. Does that make sense? This time period where they had all things in common, house to house, day to day, meeting in the temple, meeting house to house, was probably a time period of about three weeks. It was not how they built the church. They were responding to a short-term situation because people were in town from all over the world. After a short period of time, those people go back to where they came from. Does that make sense? So Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, is not the model how you build the church long-term. It's how they responded to a short-term situation. So when we travel through the book of Acts and we see all these other churches, we're going to find that they don't have to do what we see here in Acts chapter 2. And the reason that they don't have to is like when Paul goes to Berea or Thessalonica, nobody's in from out of town. They're all just there. So they don't have to sell their property. They don't have to do those things. So this is a very short-term thing. How many of you never heard that before? Good. Four of us. We'll take it. So here's what I want you to write down. We have to realize it's not communism and it's not a commune. It's just believers in from out of town. That's all it is. <laughs> write that down. It goes on for a, a few weeks. And again, that's why descriptive and prescriptive are very important. Well, hopefully you found that interesting today. Uh, This is the last time we're going to take two weeks to go through a chapter, I hope. But I felt that that was important to, to unpack that. With that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And Lord, we see in the Bible, whether it's in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 16, we see that when your spirit moves upon those who invite you in, that it always manifests the same way. There's a heart for you, for what you're doing. There's a desire for praise. There's a hunger for the word. There's a desire to participate in what it is that you're doing. And Lord, as each of us examines our life and we determine Did your Holy Spirit come into our life and manifest in that way? Or would we have to honestly say, I go to church, I'm a nice person, I'm curious, but I wouldn't say that any of that really describes who I am. And we realize that even though we may have been in church, it could very well be. And that although we're nice people, We've never come to the place where your spirit 
the Holy Spirit of God has come into our inner being, placed a love for you and the things that you're doing, and that change has taken place, and it's evident to all. So we realize that the first step is just inviting you in. And so we look to you and we say, Jesus, come into my life. I accept your free gift of forgiveness. I want you to step into my life and change me in my very core. I want that gladly receiving the word. I want you manifesting your purpose in my life. And he says when we do that, he'll never leave. And it changes everything. And I pray, God, that you fill us with your love. Father, thank you for those who are here. Thank you for the love for your word, the love for your spirit. And I pray you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.